0: When we call Him Lord, uh, we embody that uh, by giving our allegiance to Him. Uh, So, content embodiment matters. What we believe and that we put that belief into practice. Uh, I mentioned last semester this guy named Matthew Bates has said uh, a better way, a better catch-all term for the New Testament word faith that we often translate, uh, the Greek is pistis, uh, might better be allegiance. Uh, so you see this word pistis show up uh, in places where someone is showing loyalty or faithfulness to a king. Jesus is our king, so we not only believe, but we embody that by giving the king our allegiance. And we get an idea like this in James. Faith without works is dead. Belief and embodiment. So when we open up uh, and, and confess the creed, this very first word uh, positions us not only to say something about the content kind of intellectual scent, but also uh, the embodiment. We are to confess this not only with our mouths, but with our lives as well. So that's maybe the big takeaway. We're confessing this not only with our mouths, but with our lives as well. Um, Matt, Lauren, anything you would, you would add we, to this? The, one of the
1: last things you said really struck my attention. Um, you said that the, the Greek term that we usually translate as "believe." he sees is the word that we would also translate maybe in another context as allegiance, mm-hmm. and that's interesting to me because sometimes I think we we trans when we understand belief, we understand that in a very rationalistic way, mm-hmm. as in terms of whether we believe in a fact or not, whereas allegiance is a very different kind of a mm-hmm. notion, less less epistemological, and much more ethical. Mm-hmm. This is how this is. I, I feel this way about that and therefore I'm going to act this
0: way because I believe in it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, so part of what Matthew Bates is getting at and I think rightly so is how we've struggled sometimes to understand how it is that, you know, we're saved by faith but not by works and yet we're still expected to do works and how does that all tie together and what do we do is is Paul saying one thing and James saying another, and he says when we understand faith to mean something closer to allegiance or loyalty or faithfulness, uh, the idea of of uh, faith and um, and practice tied together a little bit more sensibly, especially with the larger the confession that Jesus is Lord and King. To say that someone is King and Lord expects not that you just believe it, but that you give your loyalty to that King
2: Lord. It made me think of something similar, and I was, you could speak to this, Josh. That um, I've been talking about with my freshman Bible class that the word gospel itself Mm -hmm. has a kind of the same sort of resonance, right? That it's a, it was the word for good news that was used to proclaim like a victory of an an army, Mm -hmm. literally. So, what we can hear there is this is a different sort of. Kind of socio-political reality or allegiance. Right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So when we tell the gospel, uh, in the in that realm, gospel might mean uh, that a king is born, or that uh, a victory has been won, or uh, in the Jewish context, that God reigns. And so when we claim that, it, it, bringing all that that idea in, the proper response is faith fullness. Right. Um, seems to be really Ephesians two ten reconciles the two of up. The best of any verse in the Bible. I could quote that off the top of my head, but you can go ahead and. Say it.
3: <laughs> well,
0: as a
1: response to our salvation through faith and grace, we're created for good works, right? We're, we're to evidence our salvation, we're to testify, we're to proclaim. Through yeah. Through, through live,
3: everyday living, and I think that's what we've been talking about with mm-hmm. Romans 12 this morning, presenting your bodies a living sacrifice. right? It's daily living, it's mm-hmm. an ethical, moral living, yeah. testifies to our
1: salvation. Yeah. That means when we have that phrase, um, an expression of faith, it's not just a verbal. This is what I believe. It's also expressed non-verbally, bodily, dramatically. Mm-hmm. Go back to the, in the title and how we act out
4: what we what we've come to believe up here. That's mm-hmm. a really good word. But just don't you think it'd be very it's it's difficult for us sitting in to the scene to really understand allegiance. I think it's difficult because so. yeah, because it's, like, it's not. Mm-hmm. We use the word, but to understand what it implies yeah. is a complete surrender, right? And mm-hmm. the idea is that you know it used to be you know growing up you know I pledge allegiance to the flag and it meant something, right? Yeah. Today it doesn't mm-hmm. mean as what it what it used to to mm-hmm. some, maybe mm-hmm. uh, But I think allegiance is it's like talking about the sovereignty of God is really difficult for us. To understand in their context of Western culture. Yeah, I, I think that's. I, I think we can't
1: we can't understand it the way we used to. I think your your description of the pledge of allegiance is, is really true. That doesn't work for a lot of people it used to. However, especially in a place like Brentwood, Tennessee, people are do demonstrate their allegiance to ideas like um, gluten free. Are are being vegetarian or recycling I I, I think when we think about people who live like that especially if they're not us (laughs) we understand that that they live differently because of what they believe and it's inconvenient for us sometimes we may not get it but if, if you know anybody who's committed to those ideas that's where I think we can understand allegiance they're not going to eat this hamburger with me, not because they can't, but because they won't, because they believe um,
4: something about how they eat affects how they ought to. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think whether it be the, the culture of the church, I spent 23 and a half years in the military. So the idea of allegiance was really an important thing because life depended on it. You know, you kind of thought about. The whole country depended upon my allegiance to a set of goals and stuff like that, which I think really makes a difference of the thing. And I think it's just important that we figure out how to bring that back to life in our in our culture. Yeah,
0: that's a good that's a good analogy. With the military, you don't just kind of believe in your general or in whatever it might be. You you have to show some loyalty to, to what's going on there at at risk too. Very good. Um, all right, I believe. So, next part, I believe in God the Father. Uh, we'll, we'll try to unpack this a little bit. Uh, I believe in God. Uh, I think this is something that um, is so... Let me start my timer here so I can stay a little more concise. Um, maybe so familiar that we take for granted what it means to confess belief in God. So I'm actually going to postpone this till next week when we look at atheism, because sometimes I think it's easier to see what we are confessing by realizing what happens when we don't confess it. And I'll suggest how, um, how not believing in God seems to almost force us into some sort of nihilism, a belief that nothing ultimately matters um, because there is no ultimate purpose. Uh, and when we do that, then it might help us think to confess God opens up a realm of possibilities. Uh, but we'll focus our time right now on the belief in God as Father. And I'll look at this from three angles that we learn from Scripture, as Scripture is helping us think about this. Uh, this doesn't exhaust it, but it gets us, um, I think, somewhere to start. First, when we confess God is Father, uh, we're confessing uh, the, something about the Father's unique and eternal relationship with the Son, Jesus. Jesus. So before we think of him as our Father, we might think of him as Father to the Son. Uh, This eternal, so uh, always unique, one-of-a-kind relationship. So uh, here is John, the Gospel of John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're not getting quite to the full three-in-one trinity. Right now we'll stick with the two-in-one. You have both God and the Word who is God and with God. So you're already getting some sense of a two-in-one confession going on here. This unique, eternal relationship between Father uh, and Son. We might even hear John's prologue uh, like this. In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with Father God, and the Son was God. Um, This is a difficult thing to grasp. The the mystery that the church has tried to hold on to, that somehow God is 3 We'll just jump to three right now. Three in one. We cannot begin to fully grasp that mystery. Uh, But the church didn't uh, settle for uh, something less. The church um, discerned that, no, we have to hold on to what we cannot fully grasp and claim three in one. And that's a non-starter for some people. However, if you are willing to embrace that mystery, what it opens up is the belief that from all eternity, the center of reality is a loving relationship. So, Christians, I think, maybe better we're thinking about the lenses we put on, maybe better than any other worldview or religious system can claim that at the center of reality is love, as c s Lewis says if if God was singular, uh, then we couldn 't really talk about God being love until he created because love requires relationship, love requires more than one. Christians have to buy at a certain bullet of saying this is hard to understand, but when we do, we can confess what I think many of us recognize that love is central uh, to reality, that love is something real and good and not tangential or illusory. Um, so, angle one, God is Father to the Son in a unique way. Uh, second angle on God is Father is He's Father of us, uh, His children. Because of what Jesus has done, we might be adopted. Um, so Paul can write in Ephesians, we are adopted as His children through Christ Jesus. And John writes, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Because of what Jesus has done, uh, we can be adopted. Uh, so we're not, we're not children in the way that the Son relates to the Father, uh, but we still have this intimate, close relationship um, with Him. Um, when we recognize that we are children of God, that teaches us something not only about our identity. So when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we're not just saying, I kind of had this idea. Um, when we confess the greed and we confess, I believe in God the Father, we're also saying, I know who I am. I am a child of the Father God. And because I know who I am, I know my vocation. I am to reflect the love of the Father. So you think about what Jesus teaches. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Um, or he'll say, love your enemies because your Father is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. When we know who we are, and we know who the Father is, we know who we are to be, those who reflect His love and mercy. So, their first angle, God is Father to the Son. Second, God is the Father of us, His children. We are adopted in this beautiful way to have this loving relationship with Him that tells us about who we are and who we're called to be. And third, we might think of Father uh, as representing a character trait. Um, now, this is hard. Some of you have had um, abusive, absent, reckless, um, terrible fathers, and I don't know if you can ever confess this without it kind of sticking in the throat. Uh, and I think that's, that's okay. Um, uh, even Jesus seems to recognize this sometimes when he says things like, um, uh, your fathers, uh, though being evil, might do this. How much more will your heavenly father? So while father is meant to be a good characteristic, a good character trait, Sometimes it's not, and even Jesus recognizes that. Um, But this father, uh, when we think about him as revealed in Scripture, we might think of the prodigal son uh, parable. And the father sees the son coming at a distance. He's not just waiting there with arms folded, surprised, uh, or whatever. He is looking and longing to be reunited uh, with his son. Or Paul teaches us that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba might have something more of a... um, a little bit more informal, maybe dad, um, and that special relationship we can have with him because of what Jesus has done. I think it's interesting that both the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, uh, we start out by calling God, we position ourselves by calling God Father. How's the Lord's Prayer start? Father, and then who is in heaven, which kind of has this holy kind of distance uh, respect, but we start out Father. The Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, and then we go Almighty, Creator. And I think that both of these teach us that we have, um, there's no one one way that we relate to God. It's, it's too too complex for that. But our initial kind of default position with God is as children, and He is our Father. And that is a beautiful thing. And I think, again, this is one of those places where Christianity uh, is making a unique claim. Um uh, so, Michael Byrd, and I, I don't know if I can speak to this as well, but he says, look, to confess God as Father might, may seem a little more irreverent for Jews, perhaps blasphemy to Muslims, weird for Buddhists, and means something entirely different for Hindus. Another, he's saying, this, this is something about Christianity uh, that is special. Um, God is Father to the Son in a unique way, love is at the center of reality, this loving relationship, and another unique or distinct claim is that God is Father and we are his children. Uh, so when we confess, I believe in God, the Father. This is a beautiful, powerful confession that uh, we would do well to kind of to, to confess slowly and thoughtfully, uh, letting it sink in um, and enjoying the beauty um, and the way it, it gives life. Matt, Lauren. Um, I think in a way that we can hear this is
2: connecting with that first notion that profession of belief is um, claiming allegiance or that I'm going to live mm-hmm. into this thing that I'm professing, right? So um, when for, for Paul, you know, anytime Paul says you've been saved so live what you've been saved, right? Uh, don't ask questions people would ask who aren't actually being saved or being redeemed or sanctified like, can we go mm-hmm. on sinning so that grace mm-hmm. may well? <laughs> Um So what we see in Romans 8 is that the Spirit is creating uh, in us what it creates in Jesus to enable us to say Abba, Father as well. And so what I think is really beautiful about that is there's this sense in which when we pray and dare to address the Almighty God as our Father, there's a kind of I think a sort of stepping out in faith that the Spirit is at work within us creating that reality for us, that intimacy with God, right? That we dare call Him Abba rather than just the one whose name we cannot utter. So I think there's a kind of, uh, I I think we we hear this kind of language and we get so used to it that we don't realize how uh, remarkable it is that we actually have this intimacy with God. And it also speaks to what we talked about a lot last semester, which is that the whole point of creation was for us to move towards this sort of intimacy with God that will eventually be what you know, our destiny is to be in full union with God, to be
1: fully part of the life of God. You know? so. a, this is a different text that overlaps a little bit with Josh's sermon today. If you've already heard that, or heard I'm thinking about how this would have, have been heard within Paul's culture and the culture of the next several centuries that eventually mm-hmm, expressed the creed this way that in the, in the Roman world. Um, The father, it was an extraordinarily patriarchal society, and the father uh, was the dominant person in the family. All children were literally the property of the father. The father had the right of life and death over his children, um, which is a scary thing. But I think part of what Josh points out is that, that our father, what would have been noticeable to Paul's audience, is marked by his mercy and his his desire for relationship with us Mm -hmm. rather than by his power over us, which he also has, but which he would prefer not to express negatively by destroying us, but positively by forgiving us. And the second thing that I think was really important for Paul's audience, um, the Nashville Shakespeare Festival just put on a play called Julius Caesar, and not to give you a long history lesson, but when Caesar was murdered, Civil War broke out so to speak, between um, a coalition led by Octavian <coughs> and Mark Antony. Octavian was not Caesar's son <coughs> biologically, but he had been adopted by Caesar as his son and heir. And in Roman in the Roman world, that adoption was every bit as powerful if not more powerful than biology. It it was understood to be a mark of deep honor. And it brought with it deep obligations um, out of respect for that honor. And so while in our culture, I think sometimes we struggle with making sure adopted people feel like they are, they do belong. In Roman culture, it was almost the opposite, which is there's no question that those we've adopted belong to our family. Because it's not just an accident of birth. It's a deliberate, intentional elevation to status within the family. Does that make sense? I think if if we look at that notion of God the Father that way, that He chose us the way Caesar chose Octavian, so to speak, the way Roman patriarchs deliberately chose (coughs) individuals to bring them into His family, I think that also changes the valence yeah, um, when we repeat that line of the creed that way, it's, it's, it's unique and powerful in the nature of the relationship, but it's powerful like the Romans mm-hmm. understood adoption. Yeah, that's very good. Ah. Yes. Yeah? Uh, I think it also unifies us as one, because having one father, we are his children. Mm-hmm. And as his children, He are just all people Male, female, and God, why, whatever really you mm-hmm. want to do. You know, the ones who declare the crisis are sitting as a child of kids, now and forever. Yeah. And to have that grasp yes, that I am a child of God now and forever
3: is acceptable. And what you need me to do is to be an example of a family That unity as a family. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, you,
0: you cannot uh, you- If you claim to be a child of God and you have the same father, uh, then you can't play the game of um, I'm better than you because of ethnicity or socioeconomic status or whatever it might be. It's the, uh, going back to Ephesians, it breaks down the barriers Uh, Jew, Gentile. I mean, that was the big one then. Uh, We have our own barriers now, but if we're all children of God, then those barriers are no longer, we Mm -hmm. should no longer keep holding those up and seek to bring those down in our community, at the very least in our Christian community, and perhaps broader. Yeah. So, um,
3: jumping back into the culture that it's just was written, there's a sense of, um, written and reflected upon the good of the Jewish culture about his father and what that means. What I'm wondering is, if the Apostles' Creed were written today and the prevailing culture of today was as influential on the Creed as the culture to which it refers. So how might uh, I believe in God, the mother, be impactful in our understanding of God in a similar way as it was referring to God's father.
0: Yeah, that's... Um...
3: I'm awaiting the <laughs> no, no. I don't know that
0: it's irreverent. I think that there is, I obviously God's not male because God's not material, um, and I prefer to stick with the father son language because it is rooted in scripture. Jesus was obviously male. Um, we've been taught that. We've inherited that. It kind of keeps us in line with what's, in, you know, in line with our ancestors. Uh, in the faith. Uh, that's part of the reason I prefer that language. Um, but I don't know... I mean, there's certainly motherly images of God and in, in Scripture uh, that act as a counterbalance to all this uh, so that we don't think in entirely masculine terms. Um, so I think I'm not... I don't want to give up the traditional language be- for the reasons I said. It ties us into Scripture. It ties us into um, Christians who've gone before us. Uh, but I, I wouldn't want to go... To the other end and be like, God must be male, and we can't think of God in any sort of feminine terms because scripture presents it that way. Oh, Lauren, you you probably, in your theological work,
2: Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I appreciate that you raised the question for this because it comes up, it actually is a concern that comes up for a lot of people who are not sure what they think of Christianity. Like, Mm -hmm. is it kind of a male centric religion, right? And in many respects, yes, it is, and it has been. And this, the heritage of calling God Father, is kind of wrapped up in that in certain ways that can be problematic for because some people do think God is more male than female, right? Um, so God is neither. You know, male and female are made in the image of God, and so I think we have to get serious about thinking about how. What we, how we address God, might actually affect the way we see people, right? Do, do we think that men are able to reflect God more, you know, in some sort of more efficient way than women can? Um, But I also agree with Josh that um, there's this. We, when we see the scriptural moorings of this language, it's really important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, right? That what the way Jesus was addressing who he called the Father, that meant something in his context that's actually really redemptive and that for, for people who then were able to call God Father as well, to call God on that Father. And so, and for so long, world history has been a patriarchal, it's been dominated by patriarchal relations. So it's like Matt pointed out, that the Father was the, the one who was sort of lord of the household, right? So it's such a modern convention that we can even ask this question. it's even a, and so I think what I you know when people who wrestle with it, I say, I think one of the one of the best things we can see here is the way that the the bad stuff that comes along with father, with patriarchy, with all the kind of icky stuff there, is actually turned on its head in the way God is father, right? And the way Jesus embodies masculinity. is... <coughs> He's a vulnerable person, right? He loves people, he is um, doesn't play the, the kind of what we might call toxic masculinity role. And so I think we can see this as redeeming even what these kind of relations mean as well. So I I think it's important for us to call God Father, but to, to see it in this kind of full light of all the different, the ways it can be misused and the way that God as Father redefines Fatherhood in a way that redeems it, that allows for this wider range of possibilities for what it needs to be nailed within. You know what I'm saying? Um, um, several comments. Okay, so Chris well, was yeah, the was one. Yeah, I just to
3: follow up. Uh, I, I was thinking of it not, not as uh, maybe throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, but expanding the view uh, of, of the creed itself yeah. uh, to, to include that. From a perspective of uh, being able to embrace uh, God uh, in the virtues of the feminine, also uh, to address what I think God the Father addresses with some people, that triggers some people to some negative things about their own father, um, which can be a pathway toward redemption. Uh, doing the same thing uh, with the feminine may trigger some things with people about right. their not good relationship with their mother and poor views of women and to be <coughs> a possible pathway of redemption in, in that regard as well.
2: Yeah, I think we can think of God as, as parent, right? And and yeah, we have these really beautiful images in scripture of God longing to gather Israel right under my wings as a mother men would, or... How can I forget you? I can't forget you any more than a, a nursing woman can forget her child who's crying, right? So that's, there's some really beautiful images that show that there is this kind of maternal sensibility in God as well as paternal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so to reduce God to only what we think of, what we, like the way we hear father as a human father is is reductive and it does, it cuts off the possibility of seeing, No, you know, there's this, this full expression of parenthood here, and bigger than that too, right? It's not just
0: even a a human parent. So, and this brings us back to the idea that when we make these confessions, we are letting Scripture define it. So when we confess God as Father, we're not thinking, what does Father mean today? Or we're thinking, what does Father mean in Scripture? Mm -hmm. It means His relationship with the Son, our adopted relationship with Him, Mm -hmm. His mercy and His, um, yeah, His kindness. Maybe, yeah, two more, and then we'll, yeah, go for it.
3: Yeah, so, and this may be all the same answers, but one of the things, like, I was thinking about was something that Lauren said last semester, and she was talking about when Eve was created, it was in, it was to replicate the image of oneness, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, have a partner. it uh, was essentially the image of oneness similar to the Trinity that we're talking about. And so, it just seems very counterintuitive of a Trinity that is like oneness and equal Mm -hmm. to establish hierarchy. And so, I guess the question is, what is the point of the hierarchy? What what were they trying to communicate (coughs) with hierarchy in the first place?
0: I don't know that, personally, I don't think that the Trinitarian language of Father, Son, and Spirit is hierarchical language. I think that's maybe been pushed onto it, would you agree? Uh, because there is a, a mutual kind of reciprocal love in it. And so I think when we get to the husband-wife relationship, that should be more of our model of that mutual reciprocal love rather than uh, that hierarchical language. And maybe when we get more into the Trinitarian stuff, we can get into the, you know, um, God is the head and Jesus, you know, that, the stuff we get in Corinthians and, um, and I think in Ephesians as well to kind of navigate some of that. But I think the, the larger picture is mutuality. Not hierarchy.
2: I think that's right. I also think we have to remember that even when we say things like mutuality, when we're talking about the life of God, that we're we're trying to imagine a reality that transcends our imagination. So it's there is some sense in which there's a kind of hierarchy in play, that God is the head, which meant you know, in the tradition that means God is the Father is the source. The Son is the expression of the source of the divine life the spirit is the one that incorporates us into the divine life. So it's almost something more, more difficult to explain even in community, mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah, but this we're, is kind of, yeah, that's that's very helpful. So we're not talking about a power differential right. so much um, as a different kind of
2: describing a relational, relational yeah. Or yeah. yeah. And Yeah. You know I'm, I'm sorry. Someone else is there, is yeah.
3: The, yeah. If I'm a first century Jew mm-hmm. and I've been saying the Shema all my life, how would I look at this day? If This divide made from me from you? What, what would be my reaction
0: to that? Have you been saying the Shema? Um, yeah, I think for some it is a divide because Christianity is very much coming out of, of Judaism. And so you have Jews who, are, I mean, the disciples would have been saying the Shema. Jesus would have been saying the Shema. Most of our New Testament authors would have been saying the Shema. Um, oh, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. You um, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is Deuteronomy six five, I believe. And this was a confession that I think Jews would say pretty routinely, uh, daily, maybe twice a day. Um, so this is part of what seems to be the early church's wrestling is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Sounds like two and one. And yet, all right, well, there's one God. Here, Israel. There is one God. And so this is what the church wrestles with. Mm. How do we how do we make sense of this? And what they don't do, ultimately, as we'll get to, is they don't try to make one dominant over the other, but they want to hold on to it's simultaneously both. So you see the New Testament authors, they don't they haven't landed on the Trinity language, but Trinity is assumed throughout. Um so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real struggle, I think. Um, but they worship Jesus as God, and yet they see it as different from the Father. So it is. It's a, it's a head-scratcher for centuries. And even when we formulated terminology, we still have to be like, we confess that we can't fully grasp it. Um, yes? Okay.
1: I have an aunt who has attached feminine characteristics to the Spirit, mm-hmm. which balances it
0: all out. So that's, that's represented, I think, some of the Eastern tradition um you'll get that so that's you have a precedent for that it's in,
3: the well. in
0: the western as well okay yeah so that that's not without kind of historical christian precedence for thinking of the spirit in more feminine terms um and uh, maybe when we get to the confession of the spirit we can we can hit that um all right let me maybe cover this last little bit in a few minutes to give us time to finish with confessing the apostles creed uh, i believe in god the father here almighty creator of heaven and earth when we confess God as Father Almighty, it reminds us that He is not Father Christmas, uh, that He is Almighty, all-powerful. He's made all things, sustains all things. He can unmake all things. He's without equal. He is unrivaled in authority, strength and control. He does not seem to be bound by time or space, nothing so big to be out of his control, or so small, to be beyond his notice. He has the power to create and destroy to split the sea and bring it crashing down, to install rulers and dethrone kings, to prosper a nation and to bring it to its knees, to cause leprosy and to cleanse leprosy, to create storms and calm storms, to command angels and to cast out demons. He can harden hearts and soften hearts, defeat death and resurrect the righteous. He can overcome sin and he can make the broken whole. This is God Almighty. And we would do well to have a proper, the biblical language is fear, which is something like reverence for him. Is there anything he can't do? It would seem that he cannot go against his nature. God cannot do evil because God is good. And perhaps, as C.S. Lewis says, maybe God can't do the intrinsically impossible make a square circle, make a four sided triangle, make a rock so big that he can't pick it up. As C.S. Lewis says, nonsense is still nonsense, even if you put can God do it uh, in front of it. Um, he is creator. He has created everything. He is the only unmade thing. All things depend on God. God doesn't depend. He exists of his own. He is, I'll maybe finish here, Um, he is both transcendent and immanent. So that's kind of fun terms, which means in some ways he is distinct from his creation, and yet he is still present in his creation. Uh, So Christianity holds this kind of both-and. He is not wrapped up where all creation is a full expression of God. Uh, but nor is he, as some versions of deism might be, where he is completely hands-off. He is both transcendent and imminent. And we can maybe unpack that some more next week as we get into things like uh, pantheism and deism. Um, I think we have maybe two minutes for y'all, and then, Lauren, if you'll lead us in the Apostles' Creed after that. It's not worth it. If he only has two minutes, it's not worth it. (laughs)